0: Uh, So we're reading from Matthew 25, uh, verses 31 to 46. And I'll read that out. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put, put the sheep on his right He will reply, "Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Sorry, you did not do for the least of me. You did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life." Uh, now, there's no kids' church today, which is great. The kids get to um, listen in, maybe go to sleep or do something else but um, if there's a bit of background noise, that's okay. I might just randomly say Bluey or Peppa Pig just to keep the kids on their toes. Um, But isn't it wonderful to have many kids with us this morning? Uh, The first thing I'd like to do is ask a question. And now, can we um, put up the photos I've got pre-prepared? Possibly, by the grace of God, here we go. Now, you might have seen some of these photos recently, Besides uh, having in common the fact that they're about the bushfires in Australia, does anyone want to hazard a guess? What do these two images have in common? They're doctored. That's right. They're fake. Good Australians, we know international fake news about ourselves when we see it. Fake news. Now, fake news is one of the phenomenons of our recent society, isn't it? Fake news, deception, what we see on social media, what is real, what is not. Uh, I had a Google search of um, the top fake news items from 2018, a couple of years ago, and uh, lots of different responses, but one of them was... uh, about Donald Trump, not actually something he uh, claimed, but it was about him. And uh, this got 830,000 likes, comments, shares on Facebook. And there was a picture of Trump signing something, and he said, Trump ends school shootings by closing schools. <laughs> it's a little bit concerning that 830,000 people kind of took action on that, thinking that perhaps it was true. But we live In an age of fake news, don't we? What do we believe? What do we not believe? There are competing narratives trying to gain our attention and win our hearts and minds. Now, the passage that we are looking at today is part of a a broader discourse that Jesus was giving in Matthew chapter 23 through to chapter 25, and we're picking up right at the end. And we see two narratives at play here as well, one being fake and one being real. See, on the one hand, there is a narrative which says, doesn't really matter about the king of the universe. There's There's a king, there's a mighty one, he's away for a while, but that's okay. We can just live how we wanna live. We don't need to pay attention to those other things, do what we want now. But there's another reality presented, where there is a king, and he is real, and he sits on a throne, and he's coming back. Two narratives, one reality. And we see this in the present day too, don't we? We see a fake world presented to us that, gee, it can seem very real sometimes. A world that says, live for yourself. This life is all we have. Live for your own pleasure, your own comfort. Take the easy option, the safe option. Messages like, oh, you deserve it. You've earned it. It's all about you. And sadly, this can permeate our own churches too, can't it? When we hear it enough. Think about the prosperity gospel, about churches that are insular, self-serving and selfish that grow comfortable. But there is a real world. The one reality isn't there when we read our Bibles, that there is a kingdom, but it's not of this world. That It's God's kingdom. Jesus is the king. He is the one who reigns and rules, who sets the standards. He shows us how to live and what is good, and he's coming back. So today we look at this passage, and we see it starts with a bang, a very grand, grandiose scene in verse 31, where the Son of Man comes with power and with the clouds, with his angels, and he makes the entrance or the re-entrance, as Jesus does. And this is an event that was known and prophesied and, and promised to the audience that Jesus was speaking to. Jesus speaking to Jews who knew this. And they would have known the references when they heard it. They would have known what he was talking about. See, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel, a book written centuries before the birth of Jesus. Uh, this is what it says in Daniel 7, 13 to 14. And this is Daniel having a vision, the prophet. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So there it is. The king will come. And Jesus is saying, yes, he's affirming the king will come, and I am that king. It's not just in the Old Testament that it's prophesied. In the New Testament, it is affirmed and promised as well. In Acts chapter 1, after Jesus' ascension, an angel says, "'Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky, "'the same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven,' will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And there are many other promises in the New Testament as well. Jesus will return. But see, even though this event was prophesied from the Old Testament centuries before, it was affirmed in the New Testament with Jesus and the promises that he will come back. Even though we know it is coming, it's easy to forget, isn't it? Or maybe grow a little bit complacent. It's kind of like Christmas. See, the funny thing about Christmas is it's actually on, believe it or not, the same day every single year. But somehow, even though it's on the same day every single year, we know it's coming. We know it's there. We know it's around the corner. I'm sure no one here, but many people will forget or leave to the very last minute their shopping or their food prep or whatever it may be. Actually, one time, just for the, the kind of fun of it, um, I went to one of the big shopping centres, like 1 a.m. on Christmas Eve, and it was so packed, you could not get a park, and when I did get in, it was like sardines. It was crazy. Everyone knew Christmas was coming, and yet they get caught off guard And unprepared and we can do the same as the passage moves on we see a little bit about well, what happens when the Son of Man comes back and the first thing we see is the scope that it is all nations gathered up and included in this great event which is about to occur the great divide all the nations will be gathered before him this is universal in scope it's not universalism as we will soon see. It's universalist. Every person on the face of this planet will get caught up in the judgment of Jesus. And it's not just those living when he comes back. We see in 1 Peter 4, 5, that everyone will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There is no greater event in history than what will occur now. You might have seen Phil the G, I think it's today, the final, like, let's have a big event. That is nothing compared to what is about to happen, uh, what will happen with Jesus coming back. It is the event of all history. Jesus will gather every nation, every person, the living and the dead, and they will come before his throne. What will happen? A great separation, the great divide. See, it's universal in scope, but it's not universalist because very clearly there are some who will go to the right and there are some who will go to the left and there will be a separation. Not all will enter the kingdom of God. Not all will go to heaven. The picture it gives here is one of sheep and goats. Now, uh, if you're like me, I don't know a whole lot about sheep and goats. I had to read up a little bit about it. And there's lots that could be said, but I think one of the aspects of sheep and goats, at least in Palestine in that time, is that if you're up close or if you see different groups and herds, you're sure you might say, well, I think they're the sheep and they're the goats. But if they're intermingled and if they're all together, they actually look very similar in their colour and physique and shape. And so if you're looking from a distance and they're all intermingled, you're not quite sure what's a sheep and what's a goat. It's hard to distinguish. I actually had this experience recently firsthand. believe it or not. We were going on holidays as a family to, to South Australia, a very long car ride with five children. You need something to do in the car, and we had recently been told about this game called Goat, Boat or Horse Float, and Horse Float. I don't know if you've heard of it. i would only heard of it recently. And basically, if you see one of these three things, Goat, Boat or Horse Float, You have to call it, and if you're first to call it, you kind of tick it off the list. And so whoever gets three first wins. Now, we actually went around Australia Day uh, long weekend, so we actually saw quite a lot of boats and horse floats. But goats actually proved the trickiest of them all. And what happened on many a times, that's right, I've got my son here agreeing with me, what happened on many occasions was someone would say, "goat," And then everyone else would look and go, Nah, it's a sheep. And it was a sheep. And uh, it took us a long time actually to see a goat. It can be very hard to distinguish. We see it play out here, don't we? Because both the righteous and the unrighteous are a little bit surprised about what happens. It's not like it's kind of like, yep, I knew I was righteous. I can just walk in or, oh, gee, I don't think I'm unrighteous. Both of them, there was a bit of uncertainty. There's a sense in which it's hard to distinguish the sheep and the goats. So I think one of the things we need to apply and think about for ourselves here, we need to search our hearts and be genuine and say, am I a sheep or am I a goat? Now, I don't put this forward to guilt you or shame or make you think, oh, maybe I'm not saved after all. No, that is not the intention. But when we read a passage like this and the seriousness and the severity about what it will be like to come before the throne of Jesus, you don't want to be in doubt. And you don't want to be surprised like the unrighteous were here. We want to know the goodness of God, his peace, his love, his joy, his eternal life. And if we don't know that, surely we do. In Romans 5.1 it says... Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have gained peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And in Romans 8, 1-2, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, friends, do you have peace? Or do you feel condemnation? Do you feel set free or bound? Because Jesus says, come, and he wants sheep. And if you don't know that in your hearts, even today, it is not too late to say yes to Jesus. As the passage moves on, we see the, the basis or the criteria of what this separation that begins. We've got two groups. Well, why? Why are some sheep and why are some goats? In verse 34, we see it begins actually with God, his choice and his will. The king will say, Come, you are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom, prepared for you since the creation of the world. This is something that God has done a long time ago. It's not a surprise for God. He has prepared it. He has acted and he has chosen his people. The first actor, the first initiator here is God himself. It is his plan and he is the one who has called sheep to himself. However, it continues, doesn't it? And these verses can be sometimes uncomfortable reading for us. In verse 35 and 36. The basis of judgment is practical works. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you closed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Now, for evangelicals, you look and think, wow, hang on, does that mean I'm saved by my works? It's a confronting verse because it really reads like that, doesn't it? Hang on. So am I saved through faith or am I saved because if I go and do these things and help other people, that's not what I've heard or been taught or read in the Word, but that's what it seems to be saying here. And we need to take that challenge seriously because we take God's Word seriously. Well, I think there's a few things that help us understand the passage and the context and what it's saying here about the role of works and what we do. Firstly, our commentators will generally say that this uh, verse, and particularly uh, in the reply when it says, what you have done for the least of these, is a, a kind of thematic link with something that happens earlier in Matthew. So in Matthew chapter 10, verses 40 to 42, well, actually, the kind of, there's a broader section in Matthew 10, which is Jesus sending out the 12 disciples to preach the gospel and how people respond to them. I'll read verses 40 to 42 of chapter 10. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person uh, as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives, uh, uh, sorry, gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. So there seems to be a link here in Matthew which goes back to earlier passages, and there's other passages that refer to Jesus' disciples, his followers, the messengers of the gospel, as, as brothers and sisters, as, the, uh, as little ones, as least of these. And the same, the same phrase is used here. That when you receive God's messengers, which is synonymous with receiving the gospel, then you'll receive them both practically and receive the message that they bring. So there's a sense here in which I think we can rightly say in Matthew, when you receive God's gospel messengers, you're receiving the, mes- the message as well as practically welcoming the messenger. I don't think that's true. However, I think it is broader than that as well. In uh, Acts chapter 9, we see when Saul is stopped on the road to Damascus, Jesus comes to him, says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord Saul asked? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So when the verse says, the least of these brothers and sisters, there's a sense in which when we are relating to brothers and sisters in Christ. We're relating to Jesus himself, which is important when we think about what we're doing and how we relate with Jesus and his body. In James chapter 2, it says this, verses 14 to, uh, 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So we see here that works are the outcome of faith. And what we need to be clear about here is the process and the order of which things happen. Matthew, earlier in chapter 7, talks about it in this way, like a tree and its fruit. If you plant an apple tree, it'll grow apples. If weeds get scattered, they'll grow up to be fruitless, useless weeds. You know the fruit by the seed. But the seed of faith in Christ comes first, as it has to. Because if you don't have the seed of faith in Christ and belief in him... The works cannot come because it's a different tree. It's a different seed. Uh, Luther, the great reformer, put it like this. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and certain that a man would stake his life on it a thousand times. This confidence in God's grace and knowledge of it makes a man glad and bold and happy in dealing with God And with all his creatures. And this is the work of the Holy Ghost in faith. Hence, a man is ready and glad, without compulsion, to do good to everyone, to serve everyone, to suffer everything, in love and praise to God, who has shown him grace. And thus, it is impossible to separate works from faith, as impossible as to separate heat and light from fire. Friends, they go together, don't they? If we know Christ and his love, inevitably it will produce a fruit in us to do likewise. Yes, the seed of faith comes first. It has to, otherwise fruit cannot be produced. But so must the fruit also be shown. That is why the Old Testament and Jesus himself were so critical of religious practice That was void of fruit and meaning and substance. You read through the the prophets, I I won't read now, uh, kind of for time, but Isaiah 1 10 to 20 gives one of the most blistering critiques of dead religion, just people going through religious practice again and again, sacrifices, offerings, festivals, and God hates it. He said, Give me justice and faithfulness, care for the, the widow and the orphan. And even in this discourse, in chapter 23 to 25, Jesus says this to the the teachers of the law. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. It is not as though religious practice is unimportant, But if it goes without fruit, if it goes without love in action, then it is a dead religion. It is worthless and will get thrown in the fire. So what kind of action then do we take as Christians? Well, we see here the, the emphasis on overt physical needs, don't we? And it's pretty self-explanatory. People need, our brothers and sisters in Christ need food, drink, shelter, medical care, clothing. But it's not just the physical needs, is it? There's relational, emotional needs, visiting those in prison, welcoming in strangers, hospitality. In fact, the New Living Translation uh, renders verse 38 as showing hospitality. And this is how we should live as Christians, and treat each other as brothers and sisters, as Christ, as an, the outworking of our faith. A couple of years ago, in Hokkaido, the North Island, uh, we weren't living there at the time, but there was a, a significant earthquake for that part of uh, Japan, and it happened to hit the spot where the, the main uh, power plant for Hokkaido was. And so there was like powder, power outage over the whole island. It's a big island. At the time, we had friends from Australia who were visiting and traveling in uh, Hokkaido with another OMF missionary, and they were stuck in a really remote part of the, the island, Hokkaido. They had nowhere to go, nowhere to stay. There was no power for a time. And so they managed to call up the local church. I don't know how they got the number, but they got the number. They called up the local church. And the pastor welcomed them in, even though he was going through a difficult time, obviously himself, and he gave them food, clothing, shelter, everything they needed in a time of great distress. And that was in the back blocks of Hokkaido in a place that I don't even remember, let alone uh, people who haven't lived in Japan before. But isn't that the kind of hospitality and practical love and care we should be showing each other as Christians? Wherever we are in the world, whatever language we speak, whatever country we're from, we can go and have brothers and sisters in Christ and we practice hospitality and we meet each other's needs. John thirteen thirty four to 35 says this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We see here as the passage moves on that there are very severe consequences for this great divide and separation which takes place. There are those who go and inherit the kingdom of God, verse 34, who are blessed by the Father and have eternal life, verse 46. But on the opposite side, the goats, those pass on the left, are cursed are thrown into the eternal fire, verse 41, and eternally punished, verse 46. Now, to our modern Western Australian egalitarian ears, this sounds very harsh and perhaps even unfair. God, that's pretty harsh, isn't it? Isn't that a bit too much? But Jesus is speaking to those who know better here he's addressing Jews. They know the law. They know what they should be doing. They know have been, God has revealed himself to them. And yet they have chosen another way. And sadly, they've chosen a life that is not honoring or obeying or glorifying God. We also need to acknowledge that God judges based on his standards and not ours. And I think this is one of the hardest things for us to grasp in a, in a liberal democracy where there's lots of freedom, where we're continually encouraged and taught that moral authority and authority generally lies in the individual, that you can choose your own path, you can choose your own ways, and as long as you're being true to yourself or living as well as you can, that's okay. That's good enough and you're a good person. And see, when we live in that environment, that atmosphere, we might think, oh, I don't think that's biblical, but it does creep in. And it kind of seeps into us if we're not being biblical and alert. And after a while you think, yeah, maybe actually that's true. Maybe God doesn't really judge. Maybe that is a bit harsh. Maybe people do deserve you know, a bit, of, a bit more leeway if they've kind of lived life in their own way. But do not be deceived, friends. God judges by his standards and not ours. And that might be hard to accept, but that is the truth. Living in another country, I think I understood this more. Because when you're in your own country, you're kind of safe and comfortable and you get it and you kind of know how to play the system and you know how to make yourself look good and righteous even in churches. But when you live in another country and you're under someone else's authority, you realise that actually if the Japanese government wants to put me in prison, it can. If the Japanese government wants to cancel my visa tomorrow, it can. Maybe it's just, maybe it's not. But I live under the authority of someone else, and I'm very aware of that. I was talking to someone recently, and they were telling me this story about a PhD student who was studying in China. In the terms of their uh, their visa and their PhD study, they were allowed two weeks annual leave a year. But this lady had gotten pregnant, and she was about to have a child. And this friend was saying, isn't that, like, they won't even budge. They won't change the rules. Two weeks, so she's got to have her kid and go back to work, or she's out of the country. And this might sound harsh, but again, I've lived in another country. And I said, well, actually, that's her choice. She knows the rules. She's given these rules. And China doesn't have to change the rules for her. She knew what she was getting into, and that's life. And sometimes we forget that that's life. We live under God's kingdom and his rule. It's his world. But let us not forget as well that God is a fair judge. He is not harsh or unreasonable. And we've got to remember this in light of his judgment. And I want to read Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. And this helps us understand both God's grace and compassion, but also his justice. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. God is a fair judge who desires repentance and salvation. God desires people to come to him. He doesn't delight in punishment, and he judges fairly. So what does all of this mean for us in application? Well, we need to put love into action, and part of this, uh, as part of this application, is that we, as how we welcome gospel workers, messengers of the gospel, how we treat them and care for them. That's part of the application. We can. Um, uh, I'm, I'm pleased to say I could give lots of examples of how people have been wonderfully hospitable to us and provided a great blessing. I'll just give one. Uh, last year, at the start of the year, we're still in Japan. We. Uh, The missionary wage isn't such where we have our own house or have lots of stuff in Australia. We had almost nothing in Australia. And so all we could do was pray and ask our prayer supporters to pray for us, saying we need a house, we need cars, we need lots of things. And it was only a week or two after we sent out a prayer letter, a man who I still have never met came to this church and found someone from our missions committee and said, I have a house in Bundara and no one's living in it. We used to live there. We live out in the country now. We'd, think, we'd thought about maybe we should put it up for rent. And I heard about the Jessups' need. He wasn't even receiving our prayer letter. He said, would they like the house? And we said yes. Still have never met the man. Isn't that the application that this, this passage demands? But there is a broader context here as well. Not just welcoming gospel workers or missionaries. How we care and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about the elderly. Those who struggle to get to church or can't come to church at all. Do we visit them? Spend time with them? Talk with them after church? Think about families with young kids. How we can bless them and help them and serve them. Offer babysitting so they can have a date night, invest in their marriage and have some time and peace. Do we cook meals for those in a time of crisis? If you're an employer, do you look to hire a brother or sister who needs work or is underemployed? Do we give financially to organisations who help the persecuted church? There are lonely and isolated those with disabilities, mental health issues, people who need our love, our care, our friendship, and to be included in our fellowship. It's love in action. See, we can't do everything. We can't do everything that I've just mentioned. But what is our disposition? What is our instinct? Is our instinct to justify and say, oh, well, I'm busy or I do something in other areas? Or is there an instinct to say, no, I want to look for ways to love? See, let us not put limits on love. You might think I could never invite a homeless person into my home Why not? I could never give a bag of my best clothes to the op shop or someone in need. Maybe I'll give the stuff that's barely wearable anymore. Why not? Jesus did not put limits on love. Let us not put limits on love. I want to give two quick examples about what it doesn't look like and what it does. I heard this story a while ago about a person in America, they had a turkey, um, you know, and uh, they called this hotline, there must have been some turkey hotline, and they said, oh, I've got a turkey, it's been sitting in the fridge, that's freezer, maybe someone else has heard this, it's been sitting in the freezer for 32 years, and uh, I'm just not sure, is it is it edible, like, what do you think, what do you recommend here, and the person on the hotline said, well... You know, if it's been in the freezer the whole time, there's no reason why it it, it won't be edible. But I think, you know, the taste and texture, it's it's probably not going to be very good quality. And the person on the other line said, yeah, yeah, I thought so. I'll give it to the church. (laughs) (laughs) That's not the attitude that this demands, is it? But I want to read an example of what it should look like. Now, this is a, a book... About George Muller. If you haven't heard of George Muller or read a book about him, please do. Incredible man, uh, German, who came to uh, England and set up orphanages, orphanages in, in Bristol um, 150 or so years ago. Uh, I'm going to cry, but I'll try my best. And uh, so the story here is he'd, he'd received a large donation from a very poor lady and he was going to visit her to try and give it back because he thought it was not appropriate. Good book. Uh, I will not keep you. I came to ask you a simple question. Would you reconsider the gift you gave the orphanage? One hundred pounds is a lot of money to anyone. But for you, well... He pulled the notes from his his pocket. It was a very generous gift, but I do not want to take advantage of your generosity. But Mr. Muller, began the spinster, laying her needlework in her lap, you don't understand. I want to give that money. I got an inheritance of 480 pounds from my father. I gave my mother 100 pounds and the new orphanage 100 pounds. The rest I used to pay off my father's debts. I'm perfectly happy about what I've done with the money. Maybe you don't understand, said George, feeling he was getting nowhere. How could he take money from someone this poor? Now, Mr Muller... I don't want to contradict you, but I believe I do understand, the woman said very seriously. The Lord Jesus gave his last drop of blood for me. How should I not give all the money I have for him? In fact, I have five pounds left over, and I've decided to give you that as well, for you to share with the poorest members of the chapel. That is love in action. But see, the thing is, we can't love perfectly, can we? It's not a works sermon. Our relationship with God, God's acceptance of us, is not based on our works. It's not based even on giving like that. Because there was only one who lived a life of perfect love and obedience. Jesus is the one who showed us what love in action looks like. Jesus came to earth. He didn't have to. Jesus fed the hungry and gave water to the thirsty. He invited in the strangers, the foreigners, and the sinners. He clothed the naked, healed the sick, and spent time with others who people just turned a blind eye to. He visited the despised, the outcasts, and the rejected, and he died on the cross so that he would be punished and cursed, and we would be the ones who could go free And go on to eternal life. See, our great God and Savior Jesus showed us what love is. His life was love in action. And by this grace, we can joyfully and freely follow. We too can live a life of wonderful love in action. We love not to be loved by God, we love because we are loved by God. We know what love is, and so we live a life of genuine. Radical, practical love. 1 John 3 16 to 18 says this This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. I want to leave us with a warning and an encouragement. A warning. Let us not be naive. Let us not be naive to think that our religious rituals are enough. Because without fruit, it is a dead religion. But there is a great encouragement here, isn't there? that we can live for the kingdom and in the kingdom, which is the reality, not the fake news. We've got the real thing. And when we live for that kingdom, when we live selflessly, sacrificially, put love in action, we're not losing, we're gaining. The kingdom that is characterised by grace, love, service, compassion and love in action. And we gain eternal life, blessing, In the life to come as well. See, I'm no investment banker, but when I think about where we invest in, it's pretty obvious where we should, isn't it? We have two narratives given to us one is fake news, and one is real. What do you live for? Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are um, humbled and in awe of your goodness, of your grace, and of your love in action. Uh, We don't deserve it, we didn't deserve it when you went to the cross, and yet you did it. Without you, no one would gain that eternal life, but you said, I'll take the curse. I'll take it on. I'll show love. I'll walk that path to the cross from love. Oh, Lord, please help us and convict us by your Holy Spirit that we would not live out a dead religion that does not put love in action. With the, the seed of faith in Christ, please grow a strong and powerful and firm tree that produces much fruit. We know this can only be done through you and with your help. So please help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.